Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener-supported, so your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week, and see you all in the new year. Before the pandemic happened, we had clear evidence that yes, masks in healthcare settings prevent respiratory transmission. That is something that we know, that is established, (laughs) that already exists as a fact. The question, the thing that we didn't know before the pandemic was, do mask mandates work? Do masks work at scale in the community? Mm -hmm. And now we know mandates definitely work. And we still don't necessarily know too much about how does it work when individual people make individual voices. And yet, for some reason, that's where we seem to have landed is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. The one thing that we actually hadn't gotten answered. to. <laughs> mm-hmm. to the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore pre-order a copy of jules's new book coming in january called a short history of trans misogyny or request them both at your local library and don't forget to follow us at death panel underscore So I'm here today with my co-host, Abby Cardis. Hello. And we are joined by returning guest, Ellie Murray, to have a conversation about masking together in the context of our current invisible landscape of the still ongoing COVID pandemic. Dr. Ellie Murray is a professor of epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health and co-host of the podcast Casual Inference, which is partnered with the American Journal of Epidemiology. Ellie researches how to make evidence-based decisions for public health and medicine and strategies for communicating the results of rigorous research to policymakers and the public. Ellie, welcome back to the Death Panel, and thank you so much for joining us again. Hi, it's great to be back. So... COVID is still ongoing, and since we are well into fall now and changes in testing access as well as data reporting have led many of our sort of federal or national and state-level sources to become less reliable or wholly unavailable, we know the least about current levels of community spread of COVID-19 compared to any other previous point in the pandemic. So the last year, we have seen a race to the bottom from governments and employers, especially 
Just speaking from a U.S. perspective, um, as we've recently discussed on the show with James Thomason of National Nurses United, a CDC advisory committee called HICPAC is currently trying to also roll back infection control standards in healthcare settings. Millions of people have been and are being arbitrarily kicked off of Medicaid as part of the so-called unwinding. So this is one of the largest concentrations of simultaneous insurance loss in the United States of churn, um, which has disastrous consequences, like well-documented over decades of research. And as we discussed with Nate Holdren, recent decisions in the California State Supreme Court have begun to solidify new legal precedents where employers are not going to be responsible for what they're calling, quote unquote, take home COVID. As in, basically, it's not your boss's problem if you get sick at work and get someone else sick and hurt or kill someone, disable someone that you live with, love, or are in community with. So in the same moment, you know, very few of us have very little remaining control over when, where, and how we are exposed to COVID relying on individual protections in the hopes of reducing the viral load that we each take on every day, but still each of us implementing as many layered COVID protections as possible is merely just creating a bunch of little islands in a rolling sea of COVID spread, which is why today we are especially talking about the importance of masking in healthcare settings, which we've talked about this often on the show. We've talked about this throughout the last couple of years. Most recently, we dedicated a whole couple of episodes to this in the spring. But with hospitals worldwide having dropped masking requirements and masking mandates, with some, the very few and far between, now actually already going back on those decisions, and reinstating masking requirements. Artie and I were talking and we just really wanted to put together an episode that gave us a chance to, again, make the case for why mask mandates specifically work and why we need them in healthcare settings. So to start us off, Ellie, do you mind if we start by walking through again some of the things that may overlap actually with a lot of the points that we discussed in the past with regard to the main findings of the study that you co-authored that came out this time last year in the New England Journal of Medicine? Um, that was called Lifting Universal Masking in Schools, COVID-19 Incidents Among Students and Staff. And we discussed it at length the last time that you were on. So specifically, I would love for us to start by talking about you know, why masks work why mask mandates specifically work, and what evidence you've found to support this. Because there are so many strong parallels between schools and healthcare settings um, in that we have a mix of people from different places all over the community coming together and sharing space for sustained periods of time. And at the same time, while we know there has been and is transmission in these spaces, the arguments often made that there is so much COVID just around in the world that there's no point in doing much to protect people at scale from COVID in these specific spaces. Instead, it becomes a thing for individuals to do, a sort of personal responsibility, individual choice. And the reason, you know, specifically I really wanted to have you back on, Ellie, is because we've seen writ large this year has been the year that hospitals have dropped masks. And this is something being resisted by organizers 
but is being backed up by shifts again in regulation and changes in infection control guidance that are explicitly both anti-worker and anti-patient. So with all that said, Ellie, do you mind sort of giving your take on what it is exactly that makes a mask mandate specifically such an important intervention? And then from there, we can get into and deconstruct some of the arguments that are used against very, you know, sort of clear universal precautionary recommendations and interrogate, you know, some of the role that choice rhetoric has in especially the pandemic versus endemicity debate. Yeah. So I think that this is this is a great place to start because I think what we've been seeing, especially in the past sort of 12 months or so, is a shift in language where um, there was a period of time when sort of discourse was, do masks work or do they not work? And then we saw this shift to people saying, well, masks work, but mandates don't work. Mm -hmm. And um, actually that, uh, I would argue that that's completely the opposite to what the evidence that we have, which is that we have really great evidence that mandates work and we have less great evidence about how they work, i.e., how much to actually we need to have specific, you know, everybody wearing a good mask. Can we get away with, you know, 80 percent of people wearing their mask properly, et cetera. Those mm-hmm. kind of details. That's where we don't actually have the evidence. So what we have evidence for is this sort of mandate. And it might might be helpful a little bit. And I don't know if this is too technical, but just to talk a little bit about why it's difficult, much more difficult to study masks than to study mm-hmm. mandates. I actually think that would be... I was going to ask you about that. Everyone's very <laughs> here for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the best practices currently in you know understanding data about humans from a statistical point of view comes from this idea of sort of understanding what is the causal effect of something. And most of those methods, which have been worked out really well for settings of chronic or non-communicable disease, but they start to break down when you have to deal with situations of infection. Mm-hmm. And the biggest part of that is that it's very difficult to really characterize how an individual is exposed if what all the other individuals around them are doing affects their their exposure. But in terms of sort of thinking about those infectious settings, the way to kind of understand them is to, to break apart the different types of causes and effects we could see. And so what we think about in the infection setting is there is... Um, something called a direct effect, which is, you know, what is the benefit to me of wearing a mask if nobody else wears masks or if everybody else just decides for themselves at some average level, right? So that's, that's something that, you know, for a lot of people, they're naturally quite interested in the direct effect. (laughs) Um, But then there's also this other question we can ask, which is to say, what is the spillover effect of masking? Mm -hmm. And that answers the question, what is the benefit to the people around me? What is the benefit to my community of my choosing to wear a mask versus not, right? So regardless of what they're doing, how does my masking affect the community? Um, And that's such an important question from a public health perspective, (laughs) but very difficult to, to study in data. And then there are, you know, we can sort of combine them and say, well, what's the total effect of both those you know, the benefit of me wearing a mask to me and to my community, what's the benefit of my community wearing a mask to, you know, at certain level to me. And so the idea of the question of like, do masks work? 
is not one question, right? Mm -hmm. There's at least four ways we can conceptualize (laughs) that. And one of them depends on what is the prevalence of mask wearing in the community and how well are people wearing it and et cetera. And so it's like there are a million answers to the question, do masks work? Because that's actually not one question. It's a million different questions. Mm -hmm. But when we think about a mask mandate, the mandate is really clear. And, you know, we might have different mandates in different settings. But for example, in the setting we studied, right, the state of Massachusetts said masks must be worn in school settings and and on school buses. And that was the mandate. (laughs) So there, even if people aren't actually wearing a mask, they're still experiencing the mandate. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we can look at this question of, you know, what is the impact on the community of that mandate being in place versus that mandate not being in place. And it could be the case, and this is, I think, not not true, but just as an extreme hypothetical, If imagine if masks actually don't do anything themselves directly. But when people wear masks, they decide to participate less in other high-risk activities, like going to less concerts or spending Mm -hmm. less time in closed indoor spaces, or people open the windows in the classrooms more. And that's what works. That's still going to be measurable as the effect of the mandate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so we can still see that if the mandate makes those things happen, we'll still see that the mandate works. And so it doesn't necessarily require, we don't need to understand how many people are actually wearing masks. What kind of masks are they wearing? Are they masks over their nose and mouth or just their mouth? Or are they around their chin? We don't need any of that information to ask the question, did having a mandate for masks in schools reduce COVID? Mm -hmm. Or in our case, we asked slightly the converse question, did taking away the mandate make COVID cases increase? And Mm -hmm. the answer was resoundingly yes. Mm -hmm. And a really, really important piece of that is that we could not answer a question about mask wearing in schools because we cannot have researchers standing in classrooms monitoring and recording what children are doing mask wise like schools are a, are a protected space for a protected population and so even those studies that have tried to look at mask wearing have had to do things like recording what percentage of students entering or exiting the building at school entry like in the beginning of the day and at the end of the day are wearing their mask <laughs> and use that as a proxy for mask wearing throughout the day which you know, they may not put on their mask till they get inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they may take off their mask right before they come outside. That's not necessarily going to be the same as what they're doing throughout the day. So like, we can't, nobody wants to put people in classrooms monitoring what children are doing, right? Like, so we can't have that data. Um, but even if we did, there'd be a million different ways to ask that, that leads us to just a whole mess of answers. Mm-hmm. But mask mandates are pretty clear. Right. One of the ways that you put it the last time we spoke, Ellie, was you said all of the ways that people choose to mask or not to mask are tangled up in like all of the ways that they actually come in contact with the virus. And what Mm -hmm. I think is so important and what we really sort of emphasized and uh, foregrounded in our last conversation was the idea of like mask mandate compliance not being perfect was 
often used to initiate or justify the undoing of a mandate. Mm -hmm. And many of the critiques of mass mandates have been like, oh, what are you going to do? Like have the police arrest and fine everyone. And when we did see mandates enforced that way, obviously, you know, for example, I think the most obvious example that comes to mind is like cops in the New York City subway not mask themselves and handing out tickets disproportionately to people of color for not masking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like we're, we're obviously not talking about like. Yeah, it definitely works to stand up more arms of the police state and enforce this. We're talking about actually how mandates provide both a really simple, like psychological way to enter the decision of are you masking or not, right? Kind of the <laughs> antithesis to the things that, for example, folks like Emily Oster have advocated this entire time, which was to basically turn every possible encounter with the virus into a complex series of calculations that you have to make about your own personal risk, which frankly adds so much work to the idea of making a decision about when to use and when not to use, you know, a PPE or any kind of intervention or protection as if you like that was really possible to know, right? Like it's participating in this kind of fantasy, as you're saying, Ali, of us having these data there to tell us <laughs> definitively one way or not, you know, what it is exactly about masking or mandates that works, right? It's whether it is the mask itself um, which I think, you know, we're all coming from the position that like masks themselves work, right? <laughs> Even the folks who for this whole time have been advocating for herd immunity, right? For, oh, you know, uh, hybrid immunity, especially like this is logically actually, I just want to point out the exact same argument that those people make, right? That, yeah. you know what, it's about making sure that at a community level, there is a conferred benefit to everyone. And, and what we actually have evidence for is that mask mandates are that the thing that all those great Barrington fucks and all of the people, you know, <laughs> advocating for herd immunity actually, you know, say is so perfect and so not perfect, but able to like make demonstrable impacts in terms of reducing COVID spread to the point of it really kind of being worth the negative quote unquote downsides, which is arguable, like if those are valid, obviously, which we'll get into. But this is the kind of like magical silver bullet, if there was any silver bullet for the pandemic of a very, very simple small shift, not just in the way that people are thinking about their own risk or thinking about the risk of the pandemic, but in the way we each approach our life and prepare for our day out in the world. A mask mandate means you do not have to think about it. You need to make sure you've got your mask in hand as you walk out the door, right? And that removal of the psychological burden of the administrative psychological burden of constantly doing this risk calculation, which we've all been told is the way that we're supposed to think about the pandemic, in and of itself could be productive of this entire sort of difference. <laughs> but there's really no way to know. And not knowing is not a reason to act upon what we do know. And yet this whole time, you know, the, the discussion around masks has always been 
an argument where the perfect becomes the enemy of the good and and the fact that things are not perfectly you know enforceable and not perfectly followed has been um this kind of rhetorical point used to undermine the entire uh, and, and misdirect away from the entire actual point of, of why we might be masking in the first place. Yeah, I think that there's so, so much here that that's important. Like think like the idea, for example, that a mandate is in some way different than everything else that the government does in society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. You know, it's like we don't say that speed limits should be abolished because people speed. Um, yeah, right. We don't say that murder should be allowed because people commit murder. Um Another piece is that like masks do filtration, even a cloth mask is going to do some filtration. And I think something that often gets missed in the conversation is that it's not just the goal isn't just to filter the teeny tiny little virus out of the air. Pathogens need to be encapsulated in a little bubble of moisture. And depending on the pathogen, they can survive in larger or smaller ones and they come out of your body in larger and smaller ones. That's like an aerosol is not just a virus floating around alone. It's a virus encapsulated in uh, respiratory fluid at some concentration. And so even if the mask is just sort of drying out some of those particles, that can provide some level of effectiveness. And obviously, a higher filtration mask is going to be better at filtering out more of the aerosols and more virus than a lower filtration mask. But it's not a yes, no kind of question. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's also true that there are certainly some sort of psychological behavioral effects of masking. And I think the evidence for that is how angry people get when they see other people <laughs> masking when they don't want to be don't want masks right because they're they're already being affected psychologically by seeing masks and they're reacting <laughs> with anger and so obviously there must be some psychological or behavioral aspect to masking um to there being people wearing masks or sociological you know exactly so or sociological exactly yeah. like that that it it clearly has an impact other than just filtration. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah. you know, there are multiple ways in which masks work and sort of obsessing about exactly which one and what the mix is, is really just kind of a way to diminish what the effect is and to like make it seem like an open question when we we have really good <laughs> evidence from a lot of studies that the mandates do work. Yeah, Ellie, I just appreciate so much how you framed this to begin with for exactly, you know, the reasons I think that you're you're kind of bringing in right now, because I feel like there is, you know, within uh, science, I guess there's kind of a structural preference or like a structural bias towards like, okay, well, we know that things really work if they work at like the smallest possible (laughs) unit level. You know what I mean? So like a mask mandate is just an aggregate of like a million different, you know, masking decisions. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand if the masking decisions, you know, if like how, how, yeah, like how efficient the filtration is for you as an, indi- and I, I just appreciate that your work kind of inverts that and um, forces us to look at sort of like a, a higher structural level, um, which I think is kind of an important corrective, you know, that's more of like a public health sort of way of thinking than thinking 
you know, like what are the actual mechanics of the, how this mask works on an mm-hmm. individual's body versus what effect does a mask mandate have on the general level of COVID transmission, which is a much more actionable type of question. Yes, and I feel exactly. like that's the reason why there's such pressure to answer the any irrelevant other question. question. Yeah, exactly. Any other question, literally any other question. Right. I think part of the resistance to masks is an ideological like sort of project of knowledge production is literally mm-hmm. a misdirection away from that specific question. Yeah, I think so. And I think also, you know, one of the reasons that there's kind of this need to misdirect is that in addition to all our good evidence we have that when you have mandates in place, COVID cases are lower than when you don't have those mandates in place. <laughs> we also have some really good data that shows that when you have mandates in place at the community level, people wear masks and they mostly wear them pretty well. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, we did some descriptive work here in Boston where I had, you know, um, we had students and researchers like, you know, on buses and standing on corners and in grocery stores, just counting, you know, how many people, how many people wearing masks and how many of them have them both over nose and face and things like that. And um, I have a colleague who independently, like I didn't know she was working on it, but also did a very similar study in Louisville, Kentucky. And we ended up the two studies completely independently and separately ended up both finding about 90, 95% of people were wearing masks and about 85% of people were wearing them really well across their nose and mouth at a time when both Louisville and Boston had mandates in for community masking. And, you know, I think that really speaks to the fact that like uh-huh. the conversation about masks in the public and uh-huh. people's actual attitudes to masks aren't necessarily at all lined up. No. how Think about how many op-eds we were treated to that were like real America has given up on masks. You know, like nobody does this. So I like that it's, you know, Boston and then also Louisville. Um Right. It's like, you know, not, <laughs> that's that's not like too uh, coast elite. I mean, you know, Boston is Boston, but but to find the same, basically exactly, exactly the same numbers in Louisville completely independently. Um, it was I think that was that was a really I mean, I was very surprised to find that they were. Yeah. The same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it, it gives the lie to the whole to the whole discourse, like in the media about how, you know, everyone between you know, New York City and San Francisco has totally I mean, this was much, much more of a thing, I feel like in 2021, 2022. But like, yeah, everyone in the middle of the country has given up and it's fine and no one cares. And it's like, okay, that's not right. true and at like, all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think the thing is, like, you know, both of um, my the study we did in Boston and the Louisville study, they were both done in sort of the fall, winter 2020, early 2021, when you know, people were being told that this is a problem and you should be wearing masks mm-hmm. and mandates mm-hmm. were in place. And then people were told COVID is over. It's mm-hmm. all done. No worries. And suddenly people stopped wearing masks. And it's like, yes, because you told them they didn't told have them to. to. You told them they, they were a wuss they if they were vaccinated. They didn't yeah. have to wear a mask anymore. Literally, we were told, right, the explicit line from the Biden administration was, if you get vaccinated, you can take it off. It was a trade-off. It was a reward to remove masks. We know that part of the entire way that masks work is also as a visual signifier. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a long history of kind of debates actually within anthropology and sociology, uh, uh, specifically looking at, is it useful to even use the word mask in the context of biomedicine instead of using like 
epidemic related face covering because there is a long, you know, sort of cultural history of masks and both the study of masks. And so you have like even in sort of the anthropology of looking at, uh, for example, resistance to masking in 1918 during the flu pandemic of 1918 or prior to that resistance to masking during the 1911 outbreak of the plague in China, um, which, you know, played a significant role in sort of disrupting colonial rule in the region. You have these moments also where masking becomes a visual signifier of disruption to the uh, status quo, to the norms. Mm -hmm. And there's a reaction to that that becomes sort of embodied also in discussions of sort of who has the right to assert authority and sort of who has the right to um, sort of dictate like what the science is, right? So mm -hmm. part of what I think has also been going on in the sort of discourse around masking that we've seen in the pandemic is also just a long history of this being a contested intervention, of this being one that historically, you know, has been associated with use, you know, more broadly in other countries, like as a more regular thing, but particularly like in the United States, in Europe, in the US, in Canada, in Australia um, and New Zealand, in, you know, these kind of dominant Western countries, quote unquote, like the global north treats masking as a crisis intervention. And if our goal is to put a lid on crisis, right, and say that part of the pandemic, quote unquote, is over and force this kind of end cap on it, masks become like an important visual signifier to remove the same way that we saw um, data removed from the public and also the kind of mapping of the pandemic removed at other various points. Um, part of it is also, I think, about, you know, not just uh, sort of resisting the most sort of obvious way that we could be making a small dent in this exponential situation, but it's also, I think, part of a kind of ideological apparatus that we're up against that has a very long history in relationship to so many different ways that we misunderstand disease. I mean, Ellie, one point I really appreciated that you brought in in our last conversation and you echoed a bit earlier, but I just want to you know, call this out really explicitly is, is you said like, okay, so there are so few actual infectious disease epidemiologists. This is a very narrow, <laughs> specialized part of a specialized field already. And a lot of the common sense knowledge, the kind of intuition that quote unquote experts and professionals have right now is not usually or necessarily applicable to when we're talking about mm -hmm. infectious diseases. So we are really up against here hegemony in so many ways that, you know, masking becomes, I think, the sort of nexus of all these intersecting debates about sort of who science is for and whose science is the right science. Yeah, I think exactly. And I, I want to go back to the idea you said too earlier about linking sort of that the argument for herd immunity and the argument for masks are actually the same argument, because I think that that's a really, really good point that that really kind of highlights, again, this issue of like who's science and mm -hmm. um, who gets to to make the decisions about about science. Because, yeah, like the idea behind herd immunity is that if you know, a certain proportion of enough, you know, high enough proportion of the population are infected, then most people that someone who who is infectious comes in contact with will not be someone who is susceptible to getting infected. And that will reduce overall the amount of people that each infectious person transmits to and thus the number of people infected over time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
the idea of masking is the same, that mm-hmm. if everyone's wearing a mask, people who are infectious will be putting less virus into the air. People who are susceptible will be breathing in less. And so the idea there then also is that each infectious person will transmit to fewer people and overall the amount of infection will go down. And the thing about herd immunity is in order to get there, we can get there through vaccination, except that we seem to have decided that that's not the way to get there. Um, Or we can get there through infection. And if we get there through infection, then some percentage of the people who are helping us get there are going to have to die because mm-hmm. that's what we've been seeing in terms of you know death rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then six months later, immunity has worn off and everybody's got to go through that gauntlet again. Yeah. And so that's not really a very sustainable <laughs> way of dealing with things, whereas masking, people can just keep the masks on and then nobody has to die. And you don't have to worry about like six months from now, masks don't work anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's that's what's so harrowing. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of and, you know, maybe this is is a good like transition into the discussion around masking in healthcare and what's going on there. And like there is something psychological going on here that is beyond my ability to understand. So maybe we can all think about it together. But I've been wondering what's kind of driving, you know, because society is like big and complex and, you know, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me that we are just yeah going through these cycles of like mass infection, mass death, and then starting all over again, you know, with the next variant or in the next like six month period, you know, in society at large. Within hospitals, this seems particularly like an ill-advised and costly practice. And it seems like one that is kind of as masking for COVID in hospitals is being taken away. It seems like this is also, you know, we kind of talked about this um, with the episode with Jane about HICPAC. It's not just that we're going back to like 2019 normal. It's that we're eroding the... I don't know, like the shared consensus or something about how infection control like ought to go. And I don't know, maybe I'm just talking us into a corner that is not going to be productive. But I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of, yeah, like healthcare settings and like why why it is that we keep going through these cycles in healthcare settings. And I know that it has a lot to do with like the political economy of health in healthcare settings, probably has a lot to do with psychology, with like all the sort of sociological stuff uh-huh. um, going on around covid I would always make sure that we differentiate between psychology and sociology and our experiences of the world, though, because oftentimes we can use psychology like as a type of evidence that we can't yet measure that we can point to that might be driving someone's behavior. And sometimes I think that reliance can cause us to look away from dynamics that are quite obvious in terms of system level sociological like coercion, control and like who those sort of outcomes benefit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's what I'm saying, but I I just feel like there's a I just feel like there's a lot going on here that we could maybe talk about. Um Yeah. No, I think that this is really important because I think one of the things um that has gotten lost in the conversation about masking is you know, I was saying earlier about how difficult it is to ask the question do masks work because there's so many different ways to frame that question. But actually hospitals and healthcare settings are one place where it's it's actually a lot more simple to frame the question because most of the time the interaction is 
sort of one-to-one or one-to-a-few mm-hmm. in a patient care room. Mm-hmm. And so you can easily ask the question, you know, do masks work when the patient wears them? Do masks work when the healthcare provider wears them in that patient interaction? And before the pandemic happened, we had clear evidence that yes, masks in healthcare settings prevent respiratory transmission. That is something that we know, that is established, (laughs) that already exists as a fact. The question, the thing that we didn't know before the pandemic was, do mask mandates work? Do masks work at scale in the community? Mm -hmm. And that's because all the attempts before the pandemic to answer that question had been forced to say, okay, I'm going to enroll a small portion of the community and I'm going to ask these people to mask and those people not to. And that doesn't replicate what we actually want to know about, which is everybody wears a mask because there's a disease going around, Mm -hmm. right? And so we couldn't ask the question about mask mandates before there was a pandemic to ask Mm -hmm. it in. Mm -hmm. And so when the pandemic started, we didn't know if mask mandates would work. We knew that they worked in healthcare settings. And we also had seen that when like individual community members happened to be assigned to wear them, that didn't really seem to do much. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we we saw this like that a f- very few people in the community masking didn't seem like it worked. Healthcare workers m- and patients masking definitely worked. And now we know mandates definitely work. And we still don't necessarily know too much about h- how does it work when individual people make individual choices. Mm-hmm. And yet, for some reason, that's where we seem to have landed as what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. The one thing that we actually hadn't gotten an answer to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good point. Um, And I think from a scientific point of view, that doesn't make any sense. But I think that it's it's pretty clear that this decision is not being made on a scientific basis. And I think, you know, probably you have some aspect of, well, it's expensive to provide masks to all healthcare workers and all patients and to require that people be masked. And how do you enforce it? And what are you supposed to do that sort of you know, and getting caught up in this idea that that mandates are somehow different than other rules and that we have to have some special way of enforcing them instead of just, well, when there are rules, most people basically follow them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how our society works. And then I think there's an extra layer of complication where you see that, like, I think that there's a good and, you know, this is really just sort of me kind of thinking the things I think about what might be going on behind <laughs> the scenes. But I think I think it's it's very probable that there is a sense among, you know, sort of the executive class that requiring or providing masks somehow takes ownership of Mm. infection prevention in a way that actually is is kind of impossible to do. And that, you know, as you were saying that there's, you know, some decisions in California that are sort of um, saying, okay, maybe workplaces are not to blame. But I think that the, the sort of sense of the conversation I get is people think if workplaces tried to reduce infections, but didn't succeed 100%, they would somehow be more responsible mm-hmm. for that yeah. smaller number of infections than they are for the larger number of infections that happens when they do nothing. Mm-hmm. Such a great way wow. of putting it. <laughs> and I think that that's, I mean, that's just bananas. Uh. But, but I mean, we know, though, this has been an experience 
explicit like worry and something that has been a great topic of discussion amongst like for example like the kind of chambers of commerce style organizations business groups business presses have been really focused on watching these quote unquote take home covid cases because Part of what the mandate, I think, um, really implies for people coming from that perspective is potential admission of liability mm-hmm. and, you know, fiscal and legal liability. And I think ultimately kind of one of the things that is actually going on is is that we're kind of up against um, these very sort of specific uh, medical legal anxieties about malpractice when it comes mm-hmm. to patient spaces as well. And I think it also is very influenced by the kind of decades long now preference towards behavioral nudge public health interventions and mm-hmm. PSAs. We've gone further and further away from, for example, like highly literal public health PSAs. And there's a lot of work in disability studies looking at how, for example, as anti-smoking PSAs have shifted and gotten more abstract starting in the 1990s, increased rates of smoking have been like observed among populations of people um, who are living in like group homes for people with IDD. And it's like Mm. the research attributes that to like the abstraction of the message of like the truth campaign that went from like (laughs) deliberate direct address, do not smoke to a kind of affective, like performative sociocultural kind of like vibes based (laughs) smoking is bad and makes you uncool, which like is only an appeal to like a kind of normative segment of the population. So it's kind of used as a way to discuss like how public health enforces normality and also shape like our perception of what someone's intellectual capacity is, right? And how does that shape like what the idea of intellectual disability even is? Like, is that something that is also sort of constructed by a lot of the ways that we choose to communicate various priorities, for example? And this is something that, you know, is is a is a topic of discussion, you know, kind of within these narrow um, silos and like, you know, medical sociology and stuff like that. But it, it's it's really dominant and evident so many different places, whether that's sort of in the space of like autism and autism parents and how that's talked about and the sort of responsibility of like a case of autism and how that is tied into like the whole anti-vax kind of Mm -hmm. industrial complex. And part of, I think, what we're up against here is a kind of responsibility for debility and no one wanting to own up to being um, responsible for producing the bad outcomes of COVID. And I think the idea of the mandate One, you know, we're coming from the perspective of like wanting to reduce COVID in the community and wanting to reduce the risk that everyone in the community experiences. But those folks who we're up against are coming from a completely different perspective where their priority has nothing to do with our risk, with our lives, with our suffering, with anything about where we're coming from with relation to risk. Their interest Mm -hmm. is in reducing the risk of the organization that writes their paycheck. And that (laughs) is what they're hired to be there to do. 
and to advocate for and to write policy, you know, right? So we're, we're sort of up against this apparatus where, you know, the idea of the mandate and I think the, the focus on the enforcement and people not following it perfectly, that is a fixation that comes directly yeah. from um, the kind of impossibility of like who could be held responsible for the potential economic implications of when folks become sick with COVID if there are structures in place that are supposed to prevent it. Well, and I think that this is something too that like the government for some reason seems to have felt that the best way to, you know, not make people mad is to sort of say, well, just businesses can decide. <laughs> but that that actually puts all of the responsibility and the risk on the businesses in the way that you're saying. Whereas, you know, when we look at something like the vaccines, like, yes, the government did give some funding to the development of the vaccines. But the real reason we got vaccines for COVID is because there are rules in place that the government says, if your vaccine backfires in an emergency situation and we asked you to develop it, you are not like liable in mm -hmm. all the normal ways, mm -hmm. right? And there is this there is this protection from liability, and that's what is important in developing vaccines in an emergency. And without that, none of the companies would have tried at all, no matter how much money the government gave them for the development process. And what we're seeing is that you know the government could do something similar. They could say, well you know what, it's clearly not a decision you're willing to take on the risk of making. So we're going to make the decision for you. And here's this mandate we're going to require. Or they could say, if you do these minimum, you know, you can choose, but if you do these minimum six things, then you're exempted from, you know, liability for X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, like providing basically like the idea of sort of an OSHA standard mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. or an ADA standard, that. right? Which are like things we know that the government does. Like these are not out of the box. <laughs> you know, they're not like high in the sky, out of the box unicorn ideas. They're right. normal, regular functions of government. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, when it comes to healthcare settings, like so much of, of the conversation we've had on this show about masking and healthcare has emphasized things like just... Ellie, for example, the last time we talked, you brought up the point of like we had sort of given up on doing anything to stop flu spread beyond what we were already doing before the <laughs> pandemic started. And the pandemic has taught us not just about how there are so many other respiratory diseases out there, right? Like RSV, which most people had literally probably never heard of before like uh, two years ago. But it's also taught us that there are absolutely so many things that that we can do to mitigate flu that we were not doing before. We can really step it up and reduce the kind of burden of infectious diseases, respiratory diseases in ways that we have just never conceptualized before. And part of like the evidence that sort of exists to support interventions like this has been really sparse and has involved like documentation of like intense disruption to normal social functions. Like a great example is that there was a transit strike in Paris that lasted for quite a while and the closure of the metro during flu season reduced the levels of flu noticeably, right? <laughs> like just disrupting patterns of commuting really reduced the transmission of flu and the next flu year, you know, and the flu year prior 
kept with the pattern and there was no uh, labor dispute that disrupted and stopped the entire metro system for a number of weeks. So you have like these kinds of like sparse moments of evidence here and there, but we have never had since we've been counting the way that we uh, prioritize counting now, we haven't had such a sustained example like COVID that we are living through and sort of producing um, the knowledge and response to like real time mm. updates to not just like what our guidance is, but what we even understand about what we know about the body, about medicine. It's a real challenge. Like the the ongoingness of COVID is a challenge to anyone who takes comfort in the fact or the sort of myth that uh, quote unquote modern medicine is so like perfect and advanced <laughs> that like we can cure whatever we want. You know, there's a kind of a pervasive idea that if you wreck your body or it gets wrecked, you'll be able to find a cure, right? And and until you need to access that care, it can seem like that care is great and super available. And so we're kind of up against all these different factors, which ultimately, like when we're talking about a healthcare setting, like we could reduce the burden of like infections passed in hospitals so tremendously, right? Like mm -hmm. it would be so easy to implement these things. And all of the research that we have about how to implement huge changes in, in protocol, for example, in healthcare settings, which often comes from looking at um, how the use of gloves was standardized, we know that the simpler the um, sort of guideline and the most universal the guideline the better, right? And the more available the intervention is, the better the compliance is. Like to imagine in this day and age being told as a healthcare worker, okay, like for your shift in the hospital, make sure you bring your own box of gloves. <laughs> would be like ridic categorically ridiculous, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think in some sense, there is a huge resistance here to the quite obvious, actually, like overwhelmingly obvious benefit of masking at a community level and what that could mean in terms of the future of sort of what employers are on the hook for providing. As you, as you mentioned, Ellie, this is not just about sort of like the dynamics of um, transmission. It's about all of the other things that are also going on, all those confounding factors yep. that also make this like more than one question. And I think, too, the the those other examples you bring up, too, also like kind of highlight that there's this weird idea that masking has to be like this sort of one and done that we would have mm -hmm. to say everybody mask. Everybody would have to mask perfectly and they would have to continue masking perfectly forever. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, the idea that healthcare workers needed to wash their hands yeah. <laughs> before seeing a patient or going between patients or going from a corpse to a patient. Ignat Semmelweis, let's let's talk about right. it. <laughs> right. It like <laughs> justice for know, him. That, uh, you know, uh, Semmelweis was that like 18 something? I can't remember the exact year. Um, kind of discovered this idea that part of maternal mortality in their hospital system was that the, the doctors were, before they went and delivered babies, they were doing autopsies and they Ugh. were basically infecting women during delivery in ways that gave them sepsis and were leading to death. The doctors the do or the residents the or the doctors were like going, I did a whole a whole beat on this and I just think oh, it's great. interesting. The, the medical staff were going straight from autopsies to deliveries without washing their hands and their patients were dying. The like doulas, like nurse midwives were not. Yes. And their patients were surviving, you know, like at a, at a much greater level. So there was like a, a, a pronounced uh, 
disparity. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's such a, such a fascinating story, but, you know, thinking about like how, you know, even when we talk about that, it's like, well, of course, like you need to wash your hands, but at the same time, go into any healthcare office and you will see signs that say, remember to wear, wash your hands. Mm-hmm. You will see a sign in your patient, in your doctor's office that sort of says like, you know, you can ask your doctor if he washed his hands or she washed her hands, right? Like mm-hmm. it is a continuing ongoing challenge to make sure that every patient interaction <laughs> begins with a clinician with clean hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, over a hundred years after that was like first recognized as important. So like the idea that we wouldn't have to do some work to help people learn and continue <laughs> learning right. how to wear masks mm-hmm. is just like so out of touch with reality. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I, it's, and you know, the thing is, is that like I've encountered healthcare professionals who don't believe in hand washing or gloves you know, like, and that sucks, right? Amazing. But as you said, Ellie, we have, um, you know, and there's a huge power imbalance, right? And this is something that when folks are trying to negotiate individual medical encounters, they're up against. And, and this is why, like, mask mandates in healthcare settings are extra important because we're also talking about the power relationship between physician and patient and between, you know, uh, worker and administration and hospital administrators and physician and things like that. You have this moment where, for example, in healthcare settings, right, uh, you encounter a doctor who, uh, maybe they are walking in with gloves on and the gloves are dirty and they are not changing the gloves or washing their hands in front of you and they go right to, you know, touching mm-hmm. you or something like that. <laughs> if you wanted to say something about it, you might be empowered by the fact that there are signs in the room and multiple, <laughs> right. you know, norms in place and discussion around basically telling you, you have the right to tell this person, go wash your hands or change your gloves. And that person has an obligation to be like, oh, thank you for the reminder, right? And that is part of what we uh, all work on in those encounters collectively, right? Because we're prompted to, we're expected to engage in those negotiations. The mask mandate, right, in a healthcare setting in particular is so much about messaging and it's so much about trying to work against some of the power imbalances in healthcare. I think part of the removal of mask mandates in healthcare settings also sort of, and especially when you see physicians calling for this authority, right, physicians calling for the right to choice and for the need to remove masks so that they can, like, better be perceived as empathetic, right? Like, you know, the kind of motivated reasoning that's even going on in a lot of the advocacy of doctors who particularly focus on, for example, like, oh, my empathy doesn't come across right if I'm wearing a mask. I'm like, well, bullshit, like, could just as easily be the fact that you are now saying the reason that, you know, this patient is making a complaint about you, for example, uh, has to do with the fact that they couldn't read you right because of the mask, which, like, Mm, could just be replacing whatever bullshit excuse, like, (laughs) this motherfucker used the last time or before COVID started, right? So we have these kinds of moments where, because because of like the power imbalance in a healthcare encounter, right? Like a mandate becomes even more important. So many people that I know, so many people who listen to this show um, have experienced having appointments canceled on them after they've made masking requests, even if the hospital system has put out a statement being like, oh, and you know, you have the right to choose 
you know, to ask your employer and they can't refuse, you know, I'm dealing with like trying to get a last minute GI appointment. And in the scheduling process, you know, they're like, do you have any requests? Like, is there anything you want to say about masking? And I was surprised that they had actually like prompted me. (laughs) And I said, yeah, here's the thing. Like, I really need this provider to mask. I'm trying to start like a new immunosuppressant and Um, I really need this appointment to be able to start that medication. And if I get sick with anything, that's going to delay the whole process, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm being extra careful. I'm immunocompromised. And also at the same time, I cannot start my medication without this appointment. And I've been on the wait list for months already trying to get Mm -hmm. this appointment. And so if the provider is against it, please, please put in, you know, that I really need them to mask. But if they will cancel my appointment and it is a problem for them that I've made that request, then I, I, you know, respectfully uh, apologize, acquiesce and beg that they don't cancel my appointment because that is the power differential that Mm -hmm. I am in. I have been without my medication since April because my insurance company doesn't want to pay it. Right. So I'm in a position where were there a mask mandate in place, mm-hmm. this would not be an issue. Right. This would not be a problem. This would not stress me out one bit. It would just be the normal, regular stress of, fuck, I got to get this appointment I can't get before I can get this medication that is the one that the insurance company will pay for, you know, while I have nothing in the middle, right? And so ultimately, you know, when we're talking about about mandates and about power and enforcement, right? Like, it's, it's so frustrating to see often the arguments made made by people who are coming from the position of power saying, you know, we need this choice. We need this flexibility. It's about individual liberty. And in the act of asserting, yeah. you know, the the realm of choice on masking in healthcare settings, they are literally stripping like freedom, choice, liberty, autonomy, power mm-hmm. away from patients mm-hmm. in exchange. Right. And this is all perceived as some benevolent, you know, way of like, you know, returning to normal sociality and being able mm-hmm. to see each other smile. It's just fucking sickening and infuriating. Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of things there I could touch on. And the idea of like, I mean, don't even get me started on the idea of like people being like, oh, we I need to be able to see people's smiles. Mm. It's like that you do not own (laughs) access to other people's faces. But I think in the healthcare setting in particular, too, I think that there is this sort of um, sort of partially uh, a sociological like forgetfulness and also probably coming from uh you know the the facts of the the market and whatever but that there's this like failure of understanding where when you talk about modern medicine people think about <laughs> pharmaceuticals yep. yeah and that's like that's not really what made modern medicine so great because i mean like <laughs> pharmaceuticals are wonderful but even when we had some good pharmaceuticals, a lot of people wouldn't go to the hospital because if you went to the hospital, you were probably going to die. And a mm-hmm. lot of the time you were going to die from something that didn't wasn't a problem before you went into the hospital because infection control just didn't exist. And you went into the hospital with some chronic condition, you're getting treated for it before the pharmaceuticals could save you, you'd contracted an infectious disease that gave you sepsis or Mm -hmm. pneumonia or whatever and killed you. And that was that. Mm -hmm. And like modern healthcare works because healthcare environments are safe environments where infection control is, you know, really a priority. And 
that like seems to have completely fallen out of memory for a lot of people that it's like oh no anywhere you've got drugs could be you know order order ivermectin online and that'll be the same because it's a pharmaceutical right (laughs) (laughs) totally well and that goes back to the focus on like what is the effect of a mask on an individual's bot you know like instead of thinking about like okay like yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not saying anything I haven't said before, but um, it's always worth repeating. Yeah, it all it all connects back to like sort of the level the level of analysis and a lot of what appears confusing about public health, I think, to people in public health is that a lot of it operates on this kind of biomedical, you know, like technological paradigm of like, OK, well, if your body gets fucked up, like, you know, you can just like fix it, you know, with a a prescription or, or something, um, you know, and uh, we can fix it with technology. You know, we can we can restore you to normal. And that, I think, distracts I mean, but, a lot. Yeah, of- exactly. It's like we can only do that if we have a safe, clean right. exactly. and healthy place in exactly. which to do it for you. If we have like a structure, you know, like just thinking structurally about the kinds of environments. And I mean, you know, like physical environments, but also sort of like risk environments. Right. The kinds of environments that are being created that people are moving around in. Um, but I feel it's, um, I don't know, and Ellie, you probably, well, I don't know, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, but I feel like even, even in public health, we get sort of trained away from that when it really is, you know, it's kind of the wrong question to think about like, okay, well, like, can we control what's going to happen in terms of infection outcomes for every single person? it's like, well, no, I mean, like we can't do that, you know, but we can, we can try to make a healthier environment, like a lower risk environment that's going to have that's going to have benefits, even if we can't trace them all out at the at the individual level. And that's an unrealistic demand, I think, that gets made. Um, I mean, imagine if we held pharmaceuticals to the standard of it has to work 100 percent of the time or else it's worthless. Right. Right. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, exactly. Like all those commercials with all those side effects. Like if we had to <laughs> give the side effects for masks, yep. because, you know, a lot of times when I talk about my mask mandate study or other other mask mandate studies, people say, what about the harms of masks? And I ask, please give me some literature on them. Like, I would mm-hmm. like to understand what the harms are. And I have looked myself. There are not all of the supposed, you know, information about harms of masks are opinion pieces. Right. <laughs> this is what I think might be a harm. There's mm-hmm. only one, actually. There is only one. And that is that you know, it makes communication for deaf folks more difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And because of that, though, and because of the imperative, I think, of being able to to unmask in selective situations when it's an accessibility concern, Mm -hmm. universal masking is even more more important, (laughs) right? Because deaf people don't need COVID either, right? right? Just saying. Right. Plus, honestly, like, why is it that we just leave, you know, deafness up to people with deafness to figure out a solution mm-hmm. to. Right. Like, why was there, you know, I don't know, maybe some fancier schools have that. I went to a public school. Nobody ever suggested that any of us could learn sign language. Right. You know, but but why not? That would be really useful in a lot of settings, not only when you're communicating with someone who's deaf. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think ultimately, you know, part of the problem is that, We have evidence, right? We have evidence that is untraditional because we're talking about something that there isn't a lot of precedent about, right? And when you're arguing for something that is non-hegemonic, that does not reinforce the status quo, your burden of proof is so much higher, 
right? I mean, this is something that Phil says all the time. Like, if you are arguing for hegemony, you don't really have to prove shit, right? <laughs> like, there is not a lot of burden of proof when it comes to, you know, making the argument against masking. Hence all um, these op-eds on the harms, <laughs> the so-called harms of exactly. masking. Right. Yes. But you have that that op-ed, you know, being like op-ed industrial complex held up against like nuanced and creative mm-hmm. ways of <laughs> of taking methods to rigorously study real life and try and and take away insight from that study and from that observation that can reduce morbidity and mortality in a real intangible material way, right? So to say that, like, it's so frustrating, and I'm sure, Ellie, that you've, you're, like, constantly, you know, feeling like you're up against this, but to, to see, like, such rigorous work as what you all did in the study looking at at the Boston schools and the Louisville schools is like to hold that up against op-eds, right? And to say that they're (laughs) on equal footing, right, is really, really fucking insulting. And I'm not trying to like reify, you know, data analysis here, right? Like everyone (laughs) on this call and listening probably knows I'm like the last person to be like, going there but part of it is like it's like what is the care and thought and attention put into that analysis right and Mm -hmm. we all know that the care and thought and attention put into an op-ed cannot like hold a candle to the care and thought and attention required to try and adapt like epidemiology methods to study mask mandates right like they they're not even comparable it's apples and oranges it's it's like actually comparing a stone and an orange (laughs) and trying to determine which is the better fruit right like it is absolutely (laughs) irrelevant um to the question at hand which is like how do we um get fucking rid of COVID ultimately like how do we reduce the amount of COVID in the air and we have really sort of one option only presented to us at this moment which is to give up right yeah. and just right let it well, and I think the other piece too is that now that like now that the emer- official emergency has ended right there seems to be this idea that we shouldn't be asking the question how do mm-hmm. we get rid of COVID but if we're not in the emergency situation, then we're in the standard situation. And the standard situation is for public health to ask, how do we make public health better? Right. <laughs> and we have in the last you know, three years, we have learned some really important things. One, we have learned, you know, if a lot of people everywhere are wearing masks, that we can really reduce flu. Yep. Um you know, to the point where there were no flu deaths in kids or one flu death in a kid or something like that first year, like really, really, really reduce yeah. the harmful outcomes of the flu. So, OK, maybe we can't do exactly what we did in 2020 again, but what parts of it would get us back to that situation? What parts of it would move us closer mm-hmm. to that situation? Right. Or like thinking about the transit strike issue um, in, in France, right? Like, obviously, we don't want to get rid of public transit, but Was it like, you know, it probably there are aspects of transit that allow infection, um, the flu to transmit more. Is it ventilation? Is it the, Mm -hmm. you know, full nights, you know, is it is it fires on the surface of the poles? Is it like the site, you know, could we make more smaller train cars? Could we ventilate better? Could we have, you know, silver coated poles that don't like promote 
um, viral survival? Like, what are the things that we could do to make those environments safer, knowing that a large, a measurable proportion of infection is coming from those environments? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's like, there's been this like weird, like, okay, so now we just pretend it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and yeah, you're asking a classic back, public health question, like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> right. And I think that this does go back to the fact that, you know, infectious disease epidemiology has for the last like 50 years been a very niche, small part of epidemiology and, and public health. Right. And that like the leadership in the field has for a long time been pushing towards chronic disease and thinking about, you know, chronic non-communicable diseases and how do we deal with cancer and obesity and think about nutrition. And obviously those things are important, not saying that they're not important, but infectious diseases don't just go away if we ignore them. And so like, we can't just forget about them. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. is like, this is what the, the concept of the epidemiologic transition has wrought Um, Yes, we all get taught in public health school. And this is a real holdover from uh, truly, I think, like the 1950s, you know, like when like the first wave of, you know, really powerful antibiotics was was out and like, you know, all these pathogens hadn't become resistant to them yet. Um, But there's kind of this like palimpsestic, this, you know, like zombie idea that infectious disease is solved. Like we yes. figured it out. We have the, we have the technology, like we don't have to worry about it anymore. And like, as a consequence, most of the, like, as you've been, as Ellie has been saying, like most of the field of public health in the U S is now oriented towards, you know, diseases of longevity, like chronic diseases, um, cardiovascular right. disease, like cancer, stroke, and and all of this stuff. And you can see, I mean, I can see just being in public health through COVID. And I'm not I'm not an infectious disease epidemiologist because that's not where, you know, my training, you know, like that wasn't where I found a, a place um, in grad school. But it's this idea of like the epidemiologic transition that has left the field of public health like structurally and I think psychologically underprepared for the kind of like networked threat, you know, like kind of what, what Ellie was describing at, at the top of the show, like even the methods that we use, like they, they're hard to use for something like an infectious disease. Cause most of them assume, you know, that, that your risk is your risk. Um, and that other people's, you know, like the methods don't work if you, if you have to take into account that your risk can change based on other people's, um, and, uh, I don't know. I'm not really going anywhere with this, but I do think it's interesting that like we are all and I, I think it's still true. It's still being taught this idea that the epidemiologic transition has taken place and that there's some telos, you know, that is is uh, there's some mm-hmm. teleology that's unfolding in every country. And that, you know, as every country becomes as wealthy as the U.S., like we are going to transition out of it, out of a uh, period uh, or an interval where we have to worry about infectious disease. But we know that's not the case because, you know, climate change is happening, you know, like the the, the excel. Right. I feel like violence. Viral emergence or, or pathogenic emergence is actually speeding up. Yeah, well, and I think, uh, as you say, you sort of refer to them as diseases of longevity, but you'll also see in a lot of public health contexts these things referred to as like diseases of modernity or yeah. civilization, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. The idea that, well, as we become, you know, a better, more modern society that's more civilized, we just don't have to worry about infectious disease anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's like that. I mean, that's that's demonstrably not true. <laughs> yeah. Like we've had so many reminders from HIV to COVID mm-hmm. um, that that's Dengue, not the yeah. case. Um, but I think also, you know, we really do need to have like a sort of much 
broader debate in the field of public health, because I think we are sort of captured by these historic arguments yes. in a way. <laughs> That's such a great way of putting it. <laughs> There's sort of this like 1950s idea of the epidemiologic transition, mm-hmm. and that had the shift towards the chronic disease people. Mm-hmm. But that like before that, there was the idea of like the sanitationists versus yep. the germ theory people, mm-hmm. right? And the sanitationists were like, we should clean things and there won't be disease. But they thought that the reason dirty places had disease was because like dirt just emanated this like magical disease. Yeah, emanates bad vapors and right? miasma. Yeah. That like the vibes of dirtiness was what made you sick. Mm-hmm. And so then the germ theory people, you know, clearly proved that it's not vibes from dirt that makes you sick. It's, it's germs and germs. Dirt. <laughs> but it's like the germs still come from the dirt. Right. <laughs> but there was this whole thing of like, no, it was like this war in the field between the sanitationists and the germ theory people. And the germ theory people won. And when they won, the biomedical pharmaceutical approach won. Right. And then that approach, when they were like, well, we've done all we can for these pathogens they're sorted. We're moving on to drugs for other conditions. Mm-hmm. And then the whole sh- field shifted. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 now we've moved so far away that the idea like you'll often you know, I have often seen in discussions of this kind, people will say, oh, what are you like a sanitationist? <laughs> it's like, yes, I believe in sanitation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I believe that we need clean water and clean air. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to not have fecal matter all around on our streets and whatever. Like, because the germs come from yeah. the world. Yeah, this is so analogous uh, to to your study, right? It's like, okay, thinking about the structural environment that we're creating through policies, you know what I mean, and programs, um, and how that's going to impact population health at the aggregate level, which is a, a totally like ontologically different thing than individual health you know, of of one person and one person's right. body. Exactly. Yeah. And if we think about it from that perspective, then it's like, well, okay, we don't exactly know, you know, numerically perfectly how masks work for COVID. But we do see less COVID when mandates are in place than when they're not. And we see less flu. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're seeing variations in the seasonality of RSV suggests that when mandates were in place, yeah. RSV was interrupted. And, you know, what about you know, patients on immunosuppressants for any reason, obviously they benefited from masks being in place because mm-hmm. masks were filtering out not just COVID, but right. all sorts <laughs> of things. Um, kids with asthma were probably benefiting because it was filtering out environmental, you know, toxins and n- not just pathogens, right? Like yep. everyone was more healthy when we were all wearing masks because allergens, because, you know, lead in the air and pathogens and all of these things. And so it's like from that framework too, like the idea of like prove to me masks work for COVID mm-hmm. before I put a mandate in place or before I even put the option to wear them in place. It's like, why do I need to prove that to you when we've got all this other good evidence that masks help in general yeah, for health? Can't hurt and might help. <laughs> like Yes. You know, maybe masks do hurt some people, but we do not have evidence for it. And I, you know, if somebody has the data that we can look at to look at harms of masking, like I am happy to work with them yeah. to do as rigorous let's, as possible a study let's go. to measure what the actual harms of masks are. Like, I would love to do that. Please let me know. <laughs> I was just going to say, just anecdotally, I remember at the very, very beginning of COVID B, you telling me, you know, like, oh, I've been wearing a mask on the subway for years and me thinking like, oh, yeah, 
Duh. Like, I, you know, I get I used to get sick on the bus like all the damn time. And another anecdote on the from the other side of this is um, my uh, ex partner is like a big record collector, which is like a very dusty endeavor <laughs> and um, discovered that wearing and, and, you know, like through masking, you know, like while going out record digging has discovered that like wearing an N95 mask is a great way to filter out all that mold and dust, you know, like mm. all that, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, just, just to, just to underline that there are yeah, exactly. tremendous I mean, knock on benefits know. of masking that have nothing to do with, with COVID even. Right. Exactly. And I mean, like, you know, remembering back, like, you know, before the pandemic, there were always, you know, there was constantly like New York times articles about the state of New York public schools yeah. and the mold, and the, mm-hmm. you know, like those kids were not learning as at their best right. in those schools breathing all that stuff in and they're still not because they're still breathing that stuff in and they're also breathing in COVID. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, why, why do we have to return to normal when we already know now that we can do better than that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is maybe a great moment for us to actually like pivot specifically to talking about part of what the the rush to rid ourselves of masking, right, and discourage the masking sort of from continuing is 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 about ending the pandemic, right? Quote unquote. So the other kind of aspect of this that I think is really related, and I'm really excited to talk to you both about, is this like the pandemic phase is over? Because again, this is usually used as a justification, just as equally used, I think, as well, give me the proof that masks work. The idea that, okay, yeah, masks work. But there's a time and there's a place and now is not the time and place is the (laughs) argument that I think I'd love for us to push back on next because, you know, that's a big part of, of sort of how, you know, the resistance to masking is also reproduced. Yeah, I think one of the pieces there is this idea that like if the pandemic is over, we're somehow like that means it's completely gone. And in fact, given how widespread you know, COVID got like there were there were times very early on when the pandemic could have been over and actually been over, yep. you know, when it was relatively contained and there was hope for stopping it before it got everywhere. And, you know, we did that with SARS in 2003. We've done that in the past with pandemics that have it been pandemics be <laughs> because of the, the the sort of way they were spreading. But we're not global pandemics because they didn't end up getting everywhere. Once COVID became a global pandemic, it was like ending this pandemic is actually not great news because it means we're giving up trying Mm -hmm. to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's this other idea that like, well, a pandemic will be over when we say it's over or that like ending emergencies will end the pandemic in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that this there are like several misconceptions of like what things mean there. Um, which again, you know, kind of goes to the idea of like, you know, even among infectious disease epidemiologists, you know, pandemic preparedness and response is a niche field in a niche field in a niche field, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the number of people I encounter who think endemic means end yep. of the pandemic. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh God, I never thought about the portmanteau uh, potential. No. I'm cringing so hard, but of course. <laughs> Right. But it's like, why Why wouldn't they? They've never right. seen this word yeah, before. Yeah, totally. and, and it's being used in a context of uh-huh. end of the pandemic. So why wouldn't it mean that? That makes perfect sense. It does. Like, if that's your first time encountering it and it's the only context you're encountering it, and of course you're going to think that. 
it's not what it means. But, you know, and then worse is that endemic doesn't actually have a clear meaning. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. And and even worse than that, pandemic doesn't have a clear meaning. Right. right. And there's no there's no like right. threshold between right. and de- like these are these are qualitative like I always say these are qualitative and not quantitative terms like there's right. no level of disease transmission at which you've graduated right. from an endemic to a pandemic it's subjective right. it's mm-hmm. like the resistance to masking this is a subjective consensus judgment right mm-hmm. like right. that gets constructed as as rigorously sort of right. data backed because that's what we trust right that's where we place our trust right and there there is like one small context in which there is a mathematical definition assigned to endemic, but that's in the setting of simulating infectious disease outbreaks. Ah. <laughs> and there, when you're doing like a stochastic stim- simulation, so like everything is coming from a random distribution, in order to get the model to sort of stabilize at a level where you can then start doing things to see what would happen in an outbreak setting. You have to have like a run in period before the disease like gets established in your fake population. (laughs) Yeah. In your digital population. And you decide in your digital simulated, you know, basically video game population that the disease is endemic because over some long period of time, it averages out to being in a place where each person infects one other person. Yeah. But because you were talking about simulations, like fake data, whatever, time here is meaningless, right? right it's like right. units of the x-axis don't matter because it's all like fake. Yeah. <laughs> and so like initially there was this, there, there was sort of a push from a lot of modelers to say, oh, well, endemic means the reproductive number is one. And it was like, no, it means the reproductive is, number is one on average over some time period. Yeah. So like, what is that time period? <laughs> And right, then they can't right. answer that because there's not a consistent because they don't actually say it will be endemic when in 12 time units, it's one. They say it will be endemic once that running average becomes one. Mm-hmm. And if that takes 12 cycles or 100 cycles, it doesn't make any difference. Right. They just want their model to be at that point. Right. So it's like and so like when we think about like that approach, well, first of all, it means you can only say in retrospect that we have been endemic <laughs> yeah, for some period true. of time, right? Because you have to have that data to have averaged it. Yeah. Do you feel like it's like an assertion that... It, so like the thing that I'm curious about, right, after what you were just saying and what we've been talking about is like the assertion that like, okay, like we've hit endemicity when we've hit R1, which, you know, we're like, okay, so each infection is then only responsible for passing on one more on average (laughs) is it an assertion you think about like um endemicity being like the end of like exponential explosion and be you know because perhaps like it's such an attractive frame to assert for a number of reasons one of them being that it implies it's under control right so it the the you know, when you're in that setting, yeah, then you don't expect the number of cases to grow or shrink mm. over time, that they're okay. going to be on average the same number of cases. Yeah. Okay. Now, you could be at that setting and have 80% of people infected constantly right. or 0.5% of people infected constantly. And so long as it's constant, you're in that endemic state. So mm. like, it tells you nothing about the burden of infection or how many right. people are infected. But then you immediately encounter a problem with something like COVID. And 
similarly, like with something like the flu, which is that, well, you know, we see with the flu that, you know, for a lot of reasons, some of them environmental and some of them more sociological, the our our reproductive number changes throughout the year. And so, I mean, I'm actually not aware of anyone attempting to measure over what time period you could (laughs) argue that seasonal flu has a reproductive number of one Mm -hmm. and is therefore endemic. Right. But like, even if you could say, well, seasonal flu has an R of one and is therefore endemic over this time period, you're still dealing with parts of the year where the R is higher and where the R is lower. Mm. And in those times when it's higher, you have to do control activities. And that's what we see with seasonal rollouts of flu vaccines and reminders for this and reminders for that, right? That when the R is higher than one, you have to do control activities to bring it back down. Um, And so with COVID, it's, I think, a very open question still why we're seeing the peaks happen when they happen. And I don't think environmental factors are as compelling an explanation as people really seem to act like they, like a lot of people seem to be thinking, oh, it's settling around to the, to be seasonal like the flu. (laughs) Right. But the thing about the flu is that the flu is seasonal in sync with the seasons as they vary around the world. So that Northern hemisphere has more fluid in its winter. Places closer to the equator have more constant levels over the entire year. And the Southern hemisphere has the flu season peaking in their winter, which is our summer here in the North. Mm-hmm. COVID is peaking everywhere. All over the place. Yeah. All at once. Or or sort of doing like, you know, the football stadium wave yeah. you know, around the world, right? Where a peak one place is just kicking off and then it follows and follows and follows. And so, like, with no clear distinction between when it's happening in the southern hemisphere and when it's happening in the northern hemisphere and when it's happening at the equator. And so that can't be driven exclusively by environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. So even if there is some impact of environmental conditions, there must be something else. And, you know, what we see is that it peaks in what's the northern hemisphere winter, but it's also the every hemisphere's, like, major holiday season. Yeah. And so I think it's like a much better bet that patterns of travel and gathering are driving at least that big end of the year peak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like measles where we're talking about like humidity and the dryness of the air really being like one of the primary factors determining like what time of year you're going to see measles like more concentrated. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I think that this... um you know, since since May, basically because like, you know, the reproductive number is conditional on, you know, a, a population at a time because it depends on how, what things you're doing to control infection and how many people have been infected before, how many people are susceptible, what measures you have in place. And so we're really seeing this year is basically our test case for what does it look like when we don't put protections in place. Right, yeah, right? It's so scary. And, yeah. Um, the really, you know, interesting thing, I think, is that we're seeing that absolutely the same patterns that we saw over in 2020, 2021, and 2022 are being repeated. We saw a spike around June, Mm -hmm. came down a little bit over the summer, and then an increasing trend through the end of August and September as schools came back in session Mm -hmm. that's now peaking towards the middle of October. And I very much expect we'll see a little bit of a lull and then a peak again around Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and heading into a large, you know, holiday season, New Year's peak. 
And that's, you know, my prediction based on what we've seen in past years and based on what we're seeing this year. And if that's the case, then in fact, one, it means we're not in a different situation than we were for the last three years. And two, it means that if we want to know, are we at that mathematical endemic threshold? We could probably use the last three years of data. Yeah, right. (laughs) And looking at that data, the, uh, the reproductive number is not averaging out at one. Right, right. I just want to emphasize this. I mean, I, I am, I'm loving this like discussion about reproductive number. Same. But just to kind of tie this all together, like, I mean, you, you've basically said it, Ellie, but just to emphasize it, like the reproductive number, like the, the number of infections that are generated by any given infection, it's not simply, as we've been talking about, it's not simply a biological property of the virus. It's partially that. Right. But there is actually like a ton of room to intervene, you know, like interventions do matter in bringing down, you know, you can we can do things to bring down the reproductive number. It's not encoded, you know, in the genetic code of of the virus that it's going to like always spread. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And even I mean, you know, it's it's um, even a, a, a virus that will always try to transmit from someone Mm -hmm. if that person is never comes into contact with another person, then they can't transmit, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so even if you think about like, well, yes, there is this property of the pathogen and it 100% dictates like what the pathogen can do, but also what we do 100%. Like, it's not like, oh, well, it's 80% this and 30. It's like 100% what we choose (laughs) and 100% the pathogen. And if we choose to make it not happen, like, yes, that's going to be very, very, like, we're not, going to eradicate COVID anytime soon. But just because we're not actually going to get there doesn't mean that we couldn't say we want to act as if Mm -hmm. we're Mm -hmm. trying to get there. We want to do the best that we can to make it the lowest number that we want or that we can get. Right. And I mean, as you point out, you pointed out, Ellie, you know, it's like we these actual designations of, of when something's over is kind of also how that happens is warped by the fact that it often happens in an act of looking back, right? It's Mm -hmm. in historical analysis of disease. And we're very easily able to put brackets on the Black Death, right? And say, you know... (laughs) Well, and actually, that's a a great, a great... uh, I I love that you say that because... um, it might be uh, interesting at some point to have Monica Green come on and talk to you about how actually uncertain it is uh, when yeah. the Black Death started and when it ended. Uh-huh. And that just, yeah. the, the the variance on those on those supposedly clear-cut bounds is is many decades more than it looks like and possibly even longer than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that it's still a very much open question when did that pandemic start and when did it end? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's oh. You made that point better than I could have, because I was going to say, as we talk about on the show often, you know, the sort of historical record and how it's interpreted, like, is another thing like the interpretation of data that we treat as highly neutral <laughs> when it is, in yes. fact, quite subjective. Be- you know, the the kind of idea of like, oh, um, the 1918 flu pandemic lasted two years and that was it and it was done, right? Mm-hmm. And everything was yeah. gone, right? If you actually talk to people who you know, dig into the the sort of real record and are doing, um, you know, different 
historical analysis from the dominant one, you learn about how it continued for many, many years after um, it was considered over. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I think really scared me early on was that I had been sort of reading and learning and doing research about like that specific phenomenon of the the flu pandemic being declared over and continuing for a really long time. Um, I like I had seen like there's a documentary on PBS like that's like about, you know, like, you know, reiterating someone's book about this, about the 1918 pandemic. And it's like very kind of sure of itself in presenting the ending. And I was like, that is just so strange. I'm like so curious about this. Literally like watched this, I think December, 2019 and started like researching like the construction of this like quick end uh, and, and quick, you know, sort of temporal bracketing on, on the 1918 pandemic. And so immediately one of the things that like we were kind of concerned with on, on this show was like, okay, like this is going and there's a version of this where it's suppressed quickly. Abby, I think even in the first conversation you and I had on the show, which would have been like sometime like fall 2020, you know, you said like there was a way that we could have like handled this in I think six weeks, right? Of (laughs) lockdown, right? Like six solid weeks, you could get to COVID zero. And we kind of watch that threshold pass. And mm-hmm. I think once those kinds of opportunities passed, we saw a kind of shift in in the the way that many folks in public health were thinking about this. And mm-hmm. and I understand like how many problems public health, you know, deals with and how little funding there is already. And I'm sure that the kind of economy of this like intellectual economy is in and of itself part of this, right? But I understand being like, we don't have the bandwidth for one more fucking problem, right? And having that kind of nihilistic, um, prefigurative sort of despair intersect the conversation, you know, I'm sure that played a role in it. But ultimately, you know, it benefited so few of us right to to take covid the way that we have Mm -hmm. and every single one of these infections has been productive of disability of death it has made people lose wages it has ruined some people's lives and it has ended others right like this is not the kind of nonchalant innocuous shit that it's often pretended as and Mm -hmm. fundamentally i think this is why it's so important to actually just really look at the concept of pandemic and endemic and these designations and talk about them in pol- in like the political terms in which they're actually negotiated, mm-hmm. right? Like these are subjective value judgments that we pretend are neutral. Mm-hmm. And part of what I think we really sort of need in terms of like how to survive this thing, I am a firm believer that like I think a lot of things would be really a lot better if we all masked most of the time. Like <laughs> yeah. the the to look at, you know, to look at how the pandemic's gone, to look at frankly the kind of seasonal distribution of COVID and to come away from that with any other conclusion other than, wow, sociality seems to have an impact here, <laughs> takes work, you know. Yeah. And what we're up against ultimately is a, a sort of refusal to look at the ways that, you know, 
we make each other sick by being in spaces with each other. Yeah. And I think that that um, there's this I think it probably also kind of comes down to this idea of like, what are the sort of um, political ways in which this layout is that it, it's important to note that like this idea of a public health emergency of international concern only was created as an idea in like 2005 or six, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, things that, you know, public health at least had acknowledged as pandemics that happened before that, but within recent memory have been completely sort of ignored from the conversation of what does a pandemic look like because they aren't public mm. health emergencies of international concern. And I think like, you know, so we see all this like, well, okay, because COVID is a respiratory virus and also because the last major public health emergency of international concern was a flu pandemic, there's all this like, look at what happened with the flu, mm-hmm. right? And it'll just, that's what we can expect with COVID. But it's quite likely that a much more, you know, the the flu pandemic, first of all, we've had many flu pandemics before. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is only the second coronavirus pandemic we've had. And the first one we stopped and the second there was, a you know, an epidemic coronavirus in Middle East respiratory syndrome, which has just not sort of taken off pandemically. Um, and so, you know, we don't have a lot of prior examples here. But if we look at, you know, the last 30 years, the HIV pandemic mm-hmm. is probably a much more appropriate model mm-hmm. where what we saw is that there were, you know, a whole range of, you know, medical, environmental, sociological, political factors that needed to be dealt with there that, you know, we had this initial, you know, physical barrier protection method against infection, which actually also protected against lots of other infections. And by working hard to get everyone to do to use that in situations where transmission was possible, we were able to bring down the initial, you know, or bring down the rate of new infections. But that even then, we still need people to continue using that protection method until, you know, very recently when we were able to develop Medications which are so, you know, now we have medications for HIV that are so good Mm -hmm. that if you're on the medication and it's working for you, you effectively can't transmit. And it looks like you effectively have almost zero risk of progressing to AIDS, assuming that the virus in your system doesn't mutate, like so long as it's working well. And you lose access to your meds for whatever reason. (laughs) Yeah. But you need, but exactly these. You have to be able to access these medications. You have to know that you're infected. You have to know that you're at risk um, of infection, you know, to have access. You have to you have to have, you know, negotiate the use of um, pharmaceutical versus physical barrier protection methods in the context of trusted relationships. And if, you know, that trust is wrong, misplaced or not there or you don't you have power imbalances that don't let you negotiate those, then we see that infection risk goes up, Mm -hmm. right? And like, we know all of these things. And, you know, certainly like absolutely 100% acknowledgement to the gay and LGBTQ community, which like is the one that got the structures enacted for this. But like the way we have finally reacted to HIV is that we have, you know, there was the same situation of everybody, you know, Everybody stopped what they were doing to deal with the emergency. And then there was this, oh, my gosh, Okay, the very first start of the emergency 
pregnancy is over and we're all stretched too thin and we don't have space for anything new. But through advocacy, what we got was more funding, specific HIV AIDS targeted funding in health departments, in hospitals, in research funding, like in, you know, education materials. And I think there's a very good chance that if we really want to go back to something that looks like the actual normal level of disease we were having before, you know, or or less than that, which I think we could. But, you know, even if we actually want to get back to that actual level, we're going to need to have COVID centers, you know, people who specialize in COVID treatment, people who specialize in COVID research, special earmarked funds for COVID. That's the only way that we can incorporate actually Mm -hmm. handling living with COVID Mm -hmm. into the system. Because as you say, the system is all was already underfunded for what it had to do before. And it can't just, it can't take in COVID without having to stop doing something else. And nobody wants to stop doing what they're doing because everybody is doing things that are important that, you know, like there's nothing in public health that isn't like for some reason. (laughs) No. And I mean, I I think one of the things that's sort of is a, I, I hope an important takeaway here, right, is that we absolutely cannot consent to the sort of pre-foregone conclusion of doing nothing on COVID moving forward. Yes. You know, this is, we've known that this is our struggle for like a long time. We have been engaged with pushing back against this and refusing this for a long time. But it's always important to say, I think, just out loud, like, what we're all doing together right now that is very important is that we are not, like, accepting the idea that we have done everything we can do with regard to COVID and it's time to pack up and go home, right? Like, yes, we are talking about why masks work, why mask mandates work, why, you know, the idea of endemic versus pandemic versus, you know, whatever designation uh, is political. But ultimately, what all of this is towards, right, is a refusal of the pressure to give up on COVID, which has been present from very early (laughs) on and which is pervasive and incredibly difficult to, you know, hold up against as an individual, right? And ultimately, like, I think this conversation around masking and mandates and and sort of how these collective level interventions, population level thinking, not in terms of how do we use, you know, population level thinking to slice risk into more and more and more narrow segments, but how do we use population level thinking to to think about actually scaling things up, right? Like when we're talking about masking, we're talking about scaling up a, a mediator of the risk of of being around each other that COVID produces, right? Like that ultimately um, is our goal and I think is like the most sort of difficult thing to justify right now. For so long, it's been justified by pointing to CDC guidance and saying we have to do this because CDC guidance says we have to do this. And I think we've also sort of missed in relying on on pointing to, you know, specific institutional recommendations um, in order to justify doing this. We've kind of missed the opportunity to start building some of that 
sort of rhetoric, right? Like not us personally, but I mean, like as a society, society missed like a key moment um, to begin some of these practices of scaling up the capacity of all sorts of things to uh, meet the challenge of COVID. It's now about rising to the challenge of existing in the same world as this virus, because this is unfortunately the choice that has been made for us. Right. And I think that that's the thing is like when we look at historical examples, too, it's, you know, it's very rare that the government just decides it's going to take care of a problem just because it notices the problem is there. Right. Communities need to get together and communities need to stand up and say, we are getting sick. We are dying and we're not going to stand for it. Well, I feel like we are coming to the end of what has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Ellie, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been so great to hang out with you. Yeah, thanks, Ellie. Thanks so much for having me. It was it was really fun, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Yay! Hell yeah. <laughs> Gotta make it happen. Love to hear it. Yes. And of course, patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Stay alive another week.